Specialty Story, session number 227. You're a non-traditional student entering the medical field on your terms. You may have had some hiccups along the way, but now you're ready to change course and go back and serve others as a physician. This podcast is here to help answer your questions and help educate you on your non-traditional journey to becoming a physician. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialty. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Wayne Grody, a medical geneticist, talking about his journey to being a medical geneticist, what he likes about it, what he doesn't like about it, and so much more. If you do not understand the passion that Dr. Grody has about being a medical geneticist, you didn't listen well enough. I hope you enjoy this episode. We jump in to the conversation by talking to Dr. Grody about how he first became interested in medical genetics. Yeah, I, I actually um, know that quite well. I at least know what age I was and I know what the inspiration was. <laughs> and it wasn't a teacher, like many people say, it wasn't Mr. Wizard on TV, which uh, <laughs> I don't know, you're probably younger than me, but you know, he was the... Uh, Who's the guy now? Uh, the science guy, you know, uh, uh, Bill Nye. He Bill was Nye, the, Bill the science Nye. guy, yeah. <laughs> he was the yeah. original Bill Nye? Yeah, he really was. He was called Mr. Wizard. It was in black and white. We all watched it. No, it wasn't that. It was actually a book I read that uh, was probably way too sophisticated for me. But um, I was probably around 10 years old, and I read James Watson's book, The Double Helix, about hmm. the race for, you know, Watson and Crick trying to – uh, beat Linus Pauling and figure out the uh, the double helical structural DNA. And although I didn't even know what a molecule was, I was just fascinated by this molecule that was sort of aesthetically beautiful and also w- could determine so much about us biologically. Mm-hmm. And I think I had a feeling that I would have a career using DNA. Now, that was decades before there was DNA diagnostics, gene therapy, actually any application of DNA in medicine. Um, the first application of DNA in medicine, I mean, you may know, you can correct me. First one I ever learned when I was in med school, and it was the only one, was patients with lupus had the antibodies to the double-stranded DNA. Mm. That was about it. There was no other molecular medicine at all, you know, until the 1980s. But I think starting then, I, I knew that I would have some kind of career probably spanning both clinical and research and involving genetics and DNA. Interesting. And so the the journey to that path is is not a, a normal one, typically. Um, that's something that interested you. How did you figure out how you were going to get to this world of medical genetics? Yeah, and you've made a great point because um, medical genetics wasn't even a recognized specialty at that time mm-hmm. by the ABMS, which is the American Board of Medical Specialties. Um, and, you know, the, the student listeners should know there's a lot of bogus medical specialties out there with <laughs> verbal stuff and everything. I won't name them. Anyone can create, you know, uh, the American College of something or other. But, you know, it's only the officially recognized ones where there's, uh, you know, accreditation, board exams, certification, where mm-hmm. they're really recognized. And medical genetics was always sort of a, an informal subspecialty of pediatrics for decades. Uh, in fact, for a long time, it these diseases were seen by um, endocrinologists 
they were already seeing diabetes, which is kind of genetic, and they understood biochemical pathways. So there really weren't geneticists or medical genetics. Um, it wasn't until I had actually finished my training in 1990 that um, medical genetics was recognized as a specialty. So yeah, all of us who are in my generation took an unusual route to get here. Also one, one thing I do in medical genetics, which you can talk about later, um, I'm the director, founding director of UCLA's Molecular Diagnostic Laboratories, um, started in the mid eighties when none of those things existed. Mm. And um, that didn't exist at all as anything you could train for. And I sort of trained myself and grandfathered myself in. And then when it did become a recognized specialty called clinical molecular genetics, I helped write the exam, you know, but so um, many of us came from different specialties to enter medical genetics. Many of my colleagues had already done residencies in medicine, pediatrics, obviously, um, some in OBGYN, if they're mostly interested in prenatal genetics and amniocentesis. Uh, we've had people come from psychiatry. Uh, I trained in pathology, and that's one reason I ended up running this molecular diagnostic lab. So now it's a little more straightforward. And um, for those who are interested in it, um, although medical genetics started out as a subspecialty, uh, when it was approved by the ABMS in 1990, for reasons I don't understand, they approved it as a specialty, not a subspecialty. So theoretically, you can enter a medical genetics residency directly out of med school. Now, most programs, including ours, would prefer that you do one or two years at least of some other more, more common specialty. It could be anything or a rotating internship. Mm -hmm. um, there are a few programs that will accept you directly, mm. but most of our people come from, they've done part or all of some other residency like the ones I mentioned. Yeah, that's, that's interesting that you can, but most programs don't want that. That's, that's I know. That's interesting. And, and yeah, I, I wondered, is it politics? Is it medically based? Um, you know, one thing I love about my specialty, which I'm sure you'll, you'll be asking me is, um, it spans all of medicine. Yeah. I, I always thought I would be bored, and I don't want to insult any of your interviewees, you know, who've been from all areas of medicine. I just knew if I did nephrology, I would be bored looking only at the kidney, you know, and the same with everything else, hepatology. I, I, and believe me, I'm not denigrating those specialties. They're so important. What I love about medical genetics, it we see people with problems in every organ system and we consult and interact with every other specialist mm -hmm. from surgery to psychiatry to neurology. And so I learn about all those other fields and uh, it keeps me from kind of getting bored. Yeah. Um, and, and that may be one reason why they want you to have a broader experience in clinical medicine before you start the medical genetics. Yeah, that makes sense. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around medical genetics that you're constantly squashing among residents or medical students? Yeah, and believe me, we're trying to do that. Um, I want your, your um, listeners to know we have a real manpower in our field, and we're worried about it. I, I served as president of our specialty society, the American College of Medical Genetics, mm -hmm. which was created when the specialty was recognized. Um, you know, so it's like the American College of Cardiology, except it's so much more tiny. Um, and we spent most of our meetings just worried about the manpower. How are we going to keep this specialty going? Some of it is misconceptions that medical students and 
beginning residents have that, you know, it's only ultra rare diseases that there's no treatment for. Uh, the salaries are terrible because it's part of pediatrics and pediatricians are underpaid, which, which is true. Um, you you got to be a basic researcher or you won't survive. Um, there's a grain of truth to each of those, but they're easily surmountable. And we just try to tell them that um, you can create any career you want. Mm. Most of us are at academic centers and many of us have a research lab on the side, but you don't have to do that. I have wonderful genetics colleagues who work in the community at Kaiser and uh, community hospitals. Any decent sized community hospital can definitely use one or more medical uh, geneticists. So, you know, that those are some of the um, misconceptions that I think may be driving people away. Mm-hmm. We, we have a problem with our match. You know, we have a match for residency like every other field mm-hmm. and the top programs, including ours, most years we don't fill the match and it's really sad. Yeah. Do you think that that potentially is a part of kind of the growing trend of kind of students applying or or residents applying to uh, more procedure heavy specialties for more, more reimbursement, more money, more income? Yeah, I'm sure that's it. And I, and I'm not disparaging them. I know they come out of school with huge debts. Yeah worse than I think we had. I mean, I did take out a loan, but it was, I, it was nowhere near what they're coming out with these days. And because of the way our reimbursements are in medicine here, which is not good, the, the people who do procedures get reimbursed very well and the ones who don't, uh, don't. And that's why, you know, especially without physical procedures, it's going to be pretty under reimbursed. Genetics is kind of like that. I think with some enzyme replacement therapies coming, we, we now have some infusions and so on. We're certainly not like cardiologists or gastroenterologists where we spend most of the day doing procedures. So yeah, it's not gonna be that kind of income. Um, I just would encourage people, you know, life is, there's more things in life than just the money. Uh, yeah. Maybe you can refinance the loan or <laughs> I just think if you're happy in your work, that that means more than a long term debt. Of course, it's easy for me to say I paid mine off a long time. Ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I am of the belief that we have a lot of unnecessary burnout because people chose careers not based in passion and joy, but based in reimbursement and, and fear of repaying student loans. I fully agree with you. And, you know, as you well know, medicine is tough enough. I mean, it even starts in the pre-med years. If you don't go into a part of it that you truly love, it's going to be unbearable torture. It's going to be awful. I don't care what your salary is. You've got to really choose an area you love. And, you know, I I didn't find that many areas I love. I I know we may get into this, why I chose the specialty. There were a lot of things I didn't care for. I didn't like surgery. I, I thought I was going to go into internal medicine. I actually ended up hating that specialty <laughs> the most of any of my core rotations. I think it was probably because of the, the abusive attendings I had mm. and not because of the, but anyway, it, you know, you never know what you're going to like once you really get on those rotations. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 this, this medical genetics and molecular diagnostics provided a nice little niche for me that is just perfect. Maybe it wouldn't be for everyone, but I worry what I would have been happy with 
if I hadn't found this, I, I'm a little worried. I, one thing about, great about an MD is there's so many opportunities of what you can do. Yeah. You can do only basic research and no clinical. You can work at the FDA, you can anything. And I, because of that, I was able to not only find, but actually kind of create this niche for me because it especially didn't exist at the time. Yeah. Let's let's rewind a little bit and talk about kind of the role of medical genetics. Where where are you plugged in in the medical world? Are are you running clinics? Are you kind of behind the scenes where the primary care provider or, or specialist is like, uh-oh, I think there may be something wrong here and and consults with you, does some labs, whatever. What what does that look like for you? Yeah, that's a great question and I think it's it's one of the um some people have a misconception of what our role is. It's one of the problems relating back to your previous question. Um, where do we fit in? Um, in general, we're, we're a consult specialty. You know, we're usually not the, we're not primary care. Let's put it that way. So you don't usually hang out a shingle in your garage and practice <laughs> medical genetics. Uh, for one thing, the diseases are generally kind of rare. So you need a larger catchment area. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's very high tech and molecular these days. So you really do need the infrastructure of a, an academic center or a large HMO like like Kaiser or one of the others like that. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not the first specialty people go to. We're probably not even the 10th one. We tend to see, unfortunately, um, patients who've been on a long what we call diagnostic odyssey, which can be anywhere for months to decades where they've seen a hundred specialists, each one ordering their own MRIs and tests and all of them coming out negative or inconclusive. Mm. Finally, someone thinks maybe this is genetic and refers them to us. Uh, and we have like a, almost a dark humor about it that we're like the last stop and so on. Um, sometimes we can't help, but sometimes we will make a diagnosis and there might even be a targeted therapy for it. And then we, we were sad of all the time that was wasted. So we would like our specialty to be a little higher up in the algorithm. I don't know how you do that. And also the tests we offer to be higher up. The, the one that's changed my field the most 10 years ago was the advent of genomic sequencing, where now we can look at all the genes in the genome at once instead of just the cystic fibrosis gene one at a time. Mm -hmm. And that has ended the diagnostic odyssey for a lot of patients. Unfortunately, it's it's not ordered till they've been frustrated for 10 years. I wish <laughs> they would order it in the first few months. Yeah. How far away are we from uh, with every heel stick of a newborn? We're just running a full genomic panel and we just like like the movie Gattaca, where it's like, hey, we know everything about you when you're going to die, how you're going to die. How far away are we from that kind of obviously not not extreme, but um, from a full genomic type panel? Yeah, we think about that a lot. And I'm glad you made a movie reference because I love movies. I, I actually have a little side career since I'm based in Los Angeles. I do consulting for movies and TV shows when there's a genetic or DNA plot or they need a weird disease. They they often come to me and I was a little involved in the Gattaca thing when it came out. I actually ask our own medical students our first year when I lecture them, to, if you haven't seen it, to rent rent the DVD uh, from Netflix and watch it because it does, although it's extreme, as you said, the ethical issues it brings up are basically the same ones we deal with all the time in genetic testing, issues of discrimination, invasion of privacy. So to answer your question, 
the cost of DNA sequencing has come down and down and down over the last 20 years. You know, it, it, the Human Genome Project took 13 years at a, at a cost of $3 billion to sequence the first human genome. That obviously wouldn't be a clinical test with that kind of turnaround time. But, um, you know, then it went down to a few million, then a few hundred thousand. Now it's in the range of a few thousand. I, I have no doubt it'll be under 100 eventually. And once it gets that cheap, I do believe that probably every newborn will have a complete genome sequence. As you mentioned, they already have a heel stick to do the, the newborn screening for biochemical diseases like PKU. Mm. You can get plenty of DNA out of those filter plots. Um, and I think it will be done. I'm not saying I'm in favor of it. There are obviously risks of discrimination and so on. Um, probably the data will be stored somewhere in the electronic medical record. And the question will be, which parts of it do you report out and when? So I would prefer that adult onset disorders, which there's no way to prevent in childhood, mm -hmm. like Huntington's disease or familial breast cancer, I would not want those reported out in a newborn or a three-year-old. Mm. But maybe you could program the computer when the person turns 18 or 21, it would then pop up and the, the primary care physician would deal with it. I don't oh, know. That's, no easy that's that's a very good ethical question for uh, a medical school interview because we, we do is. that a lot. I, I was actually uh, reading a personal statement today from a student whose um, Asian heritage and culture, like the, mm -hmm. the grandfather had some sort of bad cancer and they kept it from him. And yes, and the, the student was born in the U.S. and has more American values of individuality. And he's he's struggling with this. Like I know in our culture we we hide this stuff from patients, but I don't think that's right anymore. And and yeah, that's yeah. that's interesting. I I have a a family um uh family member who uh, unfortunately um had some sort of genetic ALS um kind of early onset. Uh, genetic panel done uh, because we had a family member with it as well, and and she was positive, and and so it's like almost like a hundred percent that she was gonna get yes. this at some point, and and I mean she decided to take her life unfortunately, but that was her choice, and um, it's it's sad, but I I'm glad, um, and she didn't do it in a state like California or, or Oregon or Colorado where we have kind of right to die laws. Of course. Yes. Um, yes. But it's an, an interesting ethical dilemma of, of when do you tell someone that, Hey, genetically you're, <laughs> you weren't built the best. Yeah. Oh, and believe me, we deal with this a lot. I, I have had that, uh, um, been exposed to that in some Asian cultures, like Chinese, Japanese, I'm sure it's in others too, mm -hmm. where they don't tell the grandmother she's, got metastatic cancer. I think there was a, wasn't there a movie a couple of years ago? It might've been called The Farewell or something. It was know. on that exact theme. Wow. Um, and the uh, protagonist who was younger from the US didn't like what the family in China was doing. She thought the grandmother had a right to know. Yeah. Um, for years, our lab has been doing predictive pre-symptomatic testing for Huntington's disease. Mm -hmm. So anyone who has a parent who had it, it's dominant. They've got a 50-50 risk. There have been suicides among people who test positive, and um, some centers have not refused to do the predictive tests until the patient goes to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, takes all these um, uh, 
you know, these mood questionnaires yeah. to try to gauge that. I, we felt that's, as you uh, kind of alluded, that's very paternalistic. Yeah. I mean, if the person wants to do that, they'll do it. And why is genetics any different than, you know, a, a, you know, a breast biopsy or, or terminal brain shows, cancer? Yeah. Per, yeah. That would be a better one. Yeah. That shows glioblastoma. Yeah. Um, it gets into something we talk about in our field called genetic exceptionalism. The, the ethicists feel that somehow genetics, because of its predictive nature, mm-hmm. is somehow different than the whole rest of medicine and needs a whole other bunch of ethical guidelines. I've generally fought against that. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. So what, what does a typical day look like for you? Well, that's another great question. And I, I hope this would appeal to some of your listeners. Others may not like it. Some people like a fairly... I don't know if it's regimented, but at least uniform career where when they wake up, they pretty much know each hour what they're going to be doing. I mean, if they're in private primary care, they're probably seeing 30 patients that day. But, you know, that's never been my career. I I wouldn't be good at it. I'm glad there's people who do that. One great thing about this specialty and my little niche in it is there is no typical day or typical week. I do so many things, different things all the time. I do a lot of teaching. Um, both lectures and in the clinic and in the lab. Um, I see patients. Um, I direct my lab, which always has technical and ethical issues coming up every day. I'm on a zillion committees, both local and national. Because this is so cutting edge and new, uh, people are worried about potential ethical abuses, um, insurance discrimination, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I've had the opportunity to testify before Congress, um, I was the expert witness in the um, BRCA gene patent case, you know, that went all the way to the Supreme Court. You know, all of that will take time, but at different times. So I just sort of have to uh, be flexible how things will expand and contract. Um, so I really enjoy this wide variety of things I get to do. Maybe it's not for everybody, but I like it. And I guess related to that, another great thing about being in sort of a cutting edge specialty that's it's really molecular genomic medicine. Every week, there are new disease genes being discovered, which means new tests we can offer, or we understand the disease better at the molecular level. So it's constantly changing and expanding. It's, it, I mean, all of medicine is, but I think ours is moving especially quickly. Yeah. Do you think we'll, we'll ever get to a place where we will know a hundred percent of the genome and how each gene interacts with other genes and turns off and turns off and modifies. <laughs> and are, are we ever going to know what that like 20 D puzzle looks like? And you're right. It's at least 20 dimensions. <laughs> I will confess something to you. My, the answer I'm giving you now is much more mature than the one I would have said 25 <laughs> years ago. I actually thought that when the genome project was announced and started in 1990. I was worried that when it finished, it was supposed to be 15 years later, it finished two years early and we had the whole sequence. Now it had a lot of gaps in it. You probably heard that just recently they filled those gaps. I actually naively thought that that would be the end of genetics as a specialty, that we would now know everything. <laughs> and boy, was I actually thought I'd be out of a job. That was so stupid. We know nothing. I mean, we, we barely have our toe in the water. All that sequence gave us was the one dimensional 
you know, four letter sequence. Mm. That's the most simple part of it. As you've alluded, there's so many other levels of gene expression. There's microRNAs and things we never dreamed of at the time that are all affecting how the genes act and how they act together. Mm -hmm. um, you know, although we're doing sequencing now, clinical sequencing for all 22,000 genes, we, I still don't know how to link up three different genes that may all be causing the same disease. That, that's beyond our capability right now. Hmm. I think it will be within a few years. So yeah, we, I, I've told people we won't understand the genome and how it works probably for at least, at least another 100 years. Hmm. And, that's, and that's probably a conservative guess. But that's one great, another great thing about the specialty. There will always be a lot of questions and a lot of work for people. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> what, uh, for, for the future primary care physician out there who's listening to this, what do you want them to know about the world of medical genetics and, and the tools that you have available to help them with their patients? Because I, I think back to my training going through medical school uh, and in my internship, and I don't think medical genetics was mentioned once, like this whole like specialty nope. of like, hey, like pick up a phone call. We know to call orthopedics when there's a broken bone. We know to call uh, the pulmonologist when we have some some trouble with the lungs. Nobody's like, hey, pick up a phone and call the medical geneticist. Like, what do you want them to know that that is out there for them? Yeah, you are exactly right. And it's a major, major problem. So I mentioned we were recognized as a specialty in 1990. I think we are the newest, still the last and newest specialty to be recognized. We're the tiniest specialty. We have one person in the AMA House of Delegates, you know, surgery probably has, I don't know, 300 <laughs> or something. Um, and you're right. It's a very small part of medical school. I've tried to do my part here, but, you know, they, they're always taking away my lecture hours because everyone else wants it, too. And, mm -hmm. you know, everything's important. Mm -hmm. I do keep arguing that genetics underlies every other specialty, so they ought to have it. But you're right. Many med students graduate med school not even knowing that this specialty exists. They may vaguely know what a genetic test is. They may think know it mainly from 23andMe and other, you know, direct-to-consumer tests, which are not clinical tests. Mm -hmm. So. What I'd like the primary care people to do is at least know of the existence of our specialty. And there are websites through the college I mentioned and also our, our um, ancillary healthcare workers, genetic counselors. <clears throat> There's more of them than there are of the MD medical geneticists. They can be a huge help also. And their organization, National Society of Genetic Counselors, has a website with geographic listings of where they can find people. So yeah, we love getting those referrals. I have the greatest respect for primary care physicians in all areas. I could never do what they do. It's incredibly hard work. They have to know so much and they have to know what they don't know. So when it's time to refer. And again, I don't like to be elitist about genetics. Um, some people say only a geneticist should or a genetic test. I, I don't say that. Mm -hmm. There are certain ones that are so emotional and problematic, like the BRCA tests and the Huntington's. Those I would prefer they come through us or at least through a neurologist for ALS or Huntington's. But mm -hmm. other than that, I'd like the primary care physicians to just try to keep up a little. You know, and the AMA has a lot of yeah. educational stuff in genetics, as you probably know. 
and then please don't hesitate to call us if you ever think there's a genetic issue or even if the patient's just worried about it. You don't have time in primary care to do all that kind of taking the detailed pedigree, but we, I can spend up to two hours with a patient. People yeah. in primary care cannot do that. Yeah. So please refer them. Yeah, and I think what you were talking about, right, with ALS, with Huntington's, just completely life-changing diagnoses, you yes. want to be able to have the knowledge necessary to explain what's next. Uh, and yes, if you're clearly. if you're the primary care doc and you've you've seen ALS twice in your career, <laughs> yeah. all you're going to go is, hey, uh, you ha you tested positive for ALS, whatever, right? Um, go see the neurologist. And it's going to be three weeks until that person sees the neurologist. It's going to be three weeks of Googling. And it's not going to end well. And the neurologist is going to get the brunt of that anger, unfortunately. Um, I agree. And they have to clean up the mess. And yeah, the <laughs> yeah. worst thing is what they see on the internet. They're going to see the worst outcomes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, and so definitely the, those kind of life-changing diagnoses send to the specialist first. So the specialist can like temper expectations and, and talk about next steps, uh, when, when that yes. stuff is done. And, and we, for those emotionally charged pre-symptomatic or predictive tests, we usually do at least an hour of pre-test genetic counseling mm -hmm. and then the same amount of post-test. And there are nuances, which the primary care just may not know. Yeah. Um, you know, a Huntington's test, is 100% penetrance. If, if it's positive, you are definitely going to get Huntington's. Yeah. You don't know exactly what age you'll get it. The BRCA breast cancer test might be only 50% penetrance. Yeah. A lot of those women may never get cancer. So there's a lot of nuances you have to discuss with them after the test comes back. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so hard. And especially now with, with the open notes rules, like even non completely life-changing diagnoses patients are getting these results and not talking to anybody and they have to wait and it's it's oh i uh, know good intentions hit gone on bad a, you've hit on another one of my pet peeves <laughs> one is direct to consumer genetic testing you probably could yep could conclude especially with this uh cures act i think it's called mm -hmm. where everything is automatically released to the patient yeah. we've been fighting hard to keep both genetic and oncology tests held until after the doctor gets to talk to the patient. Because you're right, they'll see this thing, you're positive for this or that. They, you yeah. know, they won't know what it means. And yeah, yeah it really bothers me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we went through this recently. Um, my, my mom's husband was recently diagnosed with pancreatic cancer oh. and, and had some tests done. I don't know if it was a lipase or a CA199. It was, yeah. it was some, some tests out there. And and she just got it back. It it just popped into her email saying, "Hey, you got a new test result," and it was just through the roof. And she Googled it, and it's like, um, that's not good. And she didn't have anyone to talk to about it. So I agree, it's uh, awful. And even that could even apply to certain radiology tests. I don't want the patients seeing those until their doctor has sat down with them and yeah. explained the nuances. Mm. Yeah. So talk about as a medical geneticist, my assumption is kind of going back to the misconceptions, uh, especially with you coming from the pathology background, like right. you're you're kind of stuck in a hole, you're just looking at results, you're kind of head down in books, and you're not interacting with patients, but you just said like you spend two hours with a patient talking to them. So um, 
besides that, what other interactions with physicians are you having in terms of other specialties? Is it kind of every specialty? Because every specialty, apparently genetics controls all of our stuff. So I'm assuming every specialty is affected. Yeah. uh, And we joke about that in genetics. I mean, (laughs) obviously it's nature and nurture. We we like to say everything in medicine has a genetic component, even if a person gets hit by a bus. It's partly <laughs> genetic because they might must have a risk-taking allele for, you know, one of the neurotransmitters to run out into the traffic, yeah. something like that. Yeah. But, um, genetics cause them to have poor peripheral vision. I don't know. <laughs> or that too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, one great thing, you know, that uh, I don't want to bore your listeners too much with the nuts and bolts of our, our board certification, but there are various subspecialties in medical genetics Clinical genetics is patient care, and I do that. Molecular genetics, which is the lab I direct, that you could just be in the lab all day if you want. I like a mix of other things, of course. So um, clinical genetics, you will have lots of right up front uh, contact, even all day long if you want. And the thing I most love about it is we interact with all the other specialties. So I sit in on um, our, our weekly prenatal genetics conference with the high-risk OBs, you know, they see something weird on an ultrasound. And um, I go to neurology rounds. It, it's really all open if you have the time for it. And they all love to have a geneticist there because they don't know what tests are available or even who offers it, how they would order it. Does it need informed consent? Um, so it, rather than referring them all to us, I, I like being with them and advising in real time. Yeah. Oh, man. So <laughs> at, at the end of the day, you, you talked about some of the stuff you, you really like about medical genetics. Um, what don't you like about medical genetics? Um, yeah, I, most of it I do like. Um, I, I guess, as we've said before, I wish it had more visibility, both with the general public and um, with uh my medical colleagues, and believe me, I'm not blaming them. It goes back to the whole med school curriculum, which it's not, none of that is there doing. Um, you know, I, I keep bashing the direct to consumer genetic testing companies, but in a way I'll give them credit. They have raised the, the visibility and some little knowledge of DNA among everybody else. That and, you know, the OJ Simpson case, which had, everyone was watching the DNA fingerprinting and stuff. I, I still wish both they and the other specialists were a little more uh, informed about what we have to offer, what we can do and not do. You know, I get a lot of inquiries. People want uh, their patient to be uh, given a CRISPR gene editing therapy. You know, that doesn't exist. There's clinical (laughs) trials. That's not a routine thing. You know, they've heard it in the news and I'm glad they're excited about it. But so that's mainly it. Also um, there is a lot to keep up with. And, um, you know, another thing when you ask what keeps med students from entering this, um, I think people, uh, the students' pre-med experience in biochemistry and organic chemistry <laughs> have made them very afraid of biochemical pathways. Yep. Um, it's on the other side of this camera, but I've got one of those big metabolic pathways charts, you know, <laughs> with a million arrows can, in my office. If, if, I, if I challenged you right now, could you write out the whole Krebs cycle without looking? No. Okay, good. I could not. That's right. all, that, that's all we need any, to know. I don't think any of us could, yeah. <laughs> um, but 
it's not that intimidating. It's not rocket science. So don't let that steer you away. But, you know, there is a lot of basic science knowledge we have to at least be somewhat familiar with. Mm. But in general, I really don't have anything negative about this specialty. Also, everyone in it is really nice. I, I'll say that mainly because it's it, it, it is largely housed in pediatric departments and mm. pediatricians are nice anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, yes, that is that is a, a good stereotype of, of pediatricians. It is. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> I, I mean, we've talked about um, CRISPR. You just mentioned uh, before we started recording, we were talking about new new technologies and pharmaceuticals for for various gene issues out there, disorders. How how close are we potentially with um, the kind of increased exposure of uh, mRNA vaccines? How close are we to to finding some way to just print out uh, a strand of DNA that we need and put it in, which which is basically what CRISPR is, right? Uh, yes. Take out, put in. How close are we to that for the future of? Uh, and and potentially mail order babies of like, hey, I want a, a blonde hair, blue eyed, uh, um, IQ of 150, six foot three. Like, how close are we to that kind of stuff? Yeah. And believe me, that's what keeps the ethicists uh, at their work all the time. The, the good thing is the last part you mentioned, you know, we can't we don't know how to do it. And I hope we wouldn't anyway, because of the ethics of it. Mm-hmm. I, I hope we wouldn't do any procedure that has any risk, which CRISPR does for trivial purposes like blonde hair and, you know, height. Fortunately, we don't, aside from albinism, we don't know what causes any of those things you mentioned, (laughs) athletic ability, intelligence, (laughs) maybe a hundred years from now we will. Those are due to thousands of genes and other things we have no idea of yet. The single gene defects though, we are very close. And I think CRISPR will be the way to go. Gene replacement therapy, which has been tried for the last 40 years, there's been a few successes like with sickle cell, but in general, it's not been that great. Whereas CRISPR, as you said, it's much faster, cheaper, efficient. It's highly accurate down to the single nucleotide level. Mm-hmm. And um, you mentioned the COVID vaccines. That, I think, will be the way to deliver gene editing. There uh, was a paper in the New England Journal last summer. Uh, that your listeners can easily look up. The disease is transthyretin amyloidosis. It's a liver disease where the abnormal protein is being pumped out and deposited in all other organs and causing organ failure. Um, They um, delivered the whole CRISPR system to chop up the gene to the liver by simply enclosing it in a little nanoparticle uh, with RNA just like the COVID vaccine that we all got and infusing it. And it went to the liver and uh, it essentially cured those people. That's so I think that will be the way to go in the future. I do think we're quite close to it. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, If you had to do it all again, would you, would you still be a medical geneticist? (laughs) If I went into assuming I still went into medicine. Yes. (laughs) Oh, oh, there's a caveat. That's the caveat. I don't know any other specialty where I'd be this enjoying just every minute of it, where it's perfectly tailored to my sensibility. But in a way, that's me. I don't have as broad a adaptability to other areas of medicine that, that many of your listeners probably do. Hmm. The question is, would I have gone into medicine? And I think uh, 
I might have considered going into the film industry and Ooh. being a director. The only trouble is I don't think I have enough talent, so I'd probably be a, wait, a waiter right now in the restaurant. <laughs> we need those too, especially now more than ever. And that's true. We do. We do. Um, well, awesome. Any final words of advice for someone out there who's listening to this thinking, oh, wow, this sounds kind of interesting for a future career? Yeah, I would tell you them. I don't know if we, I know we have pre-meds listening and people who may be early in postgraduate training. Keep this specialty in mind. Um, you know, it does have some of the burdens and downsides we've mentioned all along, but intellectually, it, there's nothing better. And the future is just, I, I can't even predict where it's going to go within the lifetime of the people listening here and within their careers. Um, so keep an open mind. Remember, we exist. You sh- should have no trouble getting into the specialty because, like I said, even the top programs go unmatched year after year. Um, I mean, of course, we you have to be a high quality person, but yeah. we don't let in just anybody. But and I think most important of all, if you have a truly uh, passionate curiosity about human disease and how it's caused at the molecular and biochemical level. And, and a desire to be a lifelong learner, this is a perfect uh, specialty for you. All right, so there you have it again, Dr. Wayne Grody, medical geneticist. I hope this was helpful for you to learn more about the wonderful world of medical genetics. I hope you have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.